when people of color meet with an RD, a lot of that nutrition advice is recommendations that are not culturally tailored and not just to Black people, even Latinos and Indigenous people. And that bias and that subtle racism, like it creeps in. And if you don't address your bias, it's going to creep into your work. And I think it's very important, like as scientists and medical professionals or clinicians, that we really take a second to consider that because you really could be having major effects on people's health. Welcome back to Beyond the Bench, a podcast that delves into the stories behind scientists of all disciplines and their work. My name is Hannah, and I'm co-hosting with Madison here. Uh, We're both PhD students in the Department of Entomology at the University of California, Riverside. Today, we're joined by Ashley Aguilard, a nutrition sciences PhD student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's a 2019 NSFGRFP recipient and the chair of diversity for NutriBytes, a nutrition blog. And so I actually met Ashley two years ago um, at an undergraduate research program in Florida, and we've maintained our friendship since then. You'll hear more about that as we go on. Welcome, Ashley. We're really excited to talk to you today. And yeah, I'm just very curious about your research. This is Technically, the second time we're meeting because we had some computer troubles before. But um, yeah, I'm very new to all of the nutrition research. So tell us a little bit about what you study. Thank you for having me. Currently, I am studying the role of cytoskeleton-associated proteins in brown adipose tissue or brown fat. And so brown fat is it's an organ that's not talked about very often, but it's a fat depot that mainly regulates your body temperature, but it also plays a role in regulating energy expenditure. And you actually have a lot of it as a baby. And as you grow older, um, humans start to lose it. But I think in the 2000s, they discovered that we retain a little bit more than they originally thought into adulthood. And so people who have more brown fat are actually protected from developing obesity and other metabolic disorders. So it's an organ that I think a lot of people are thinking about targeting for like therapeutic treatment for a lot of these disorders. So I think that's interesting. So you refer to it as an organ. Is it considered an entirely separate organ in and of itself? You know, it's, it's so functionally unique from white fat because white fat stores fat, whereas brown fat uses stored fat to create heat and expend energy. So you know, I, I would say it's it's pretty unique. I mean, honestly, they're not even from the same cell lineage. Um, brown fat is more like muscle in some ways that it's like kind of a combination of muscle and adipose than white fat. It's very interesting. So I, I would I would argue for it being its own thing. Yeah, that is really interesting. I didn't even think of the fat that we have in our bodies as a separate organ is fat in and of itself considered a separate organ. It is, it is an organ. It actually, I mean, it even, it secretes cytokines. It secretes hormones. There's a lot to it that I feel like a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know nothing, even just after what you just told me, (laughs) it's sort of like, 
Like I remember at one point in my life, I realized that skin was an organ. <laughs> it's, you know, kids would be like, what's the biggest organ in your body? And it's, I don't know, you guess like your large intestine or something. And then it's like, no, it's your skin. <laughs> and it's a super shocking, fun fact. But yeah, I guess just because it's sort of everywhere, it just seems funny that that's an organ and it's a, sort of the same with fat in my mind but it totally makes sense because it's this whole separate part of your body that's doing a completely different thing that contributes to your health so yeah that's really cool so Ashley how did you get interested in nutrition in the first place I think I always had a an inconsistent interest in nutrition like I was interested in it as a kid, but never it never really crossed my mind to pursue it as a career. And then I was a biochem major in undergrad, and I started noticing that all the parts that I was interested in were related to metabolism, so carbohydrate metabolism, lipid metabolism. And I decided to take a nutrition class, and I loved it, and I loved biochemistry too, and kind of didn't want to double major. So I just, I took nutrition on as a minor and in grad school, I just wanted to merge those two together. So, I mean, I am, I'm studying nutrition, but more from a basic science perspective. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Was there anything about graduate school in particular that made you want to attend graduate school as opposed to I don't know, I guess like what are some other sort of educational paths and career paths that people who are interested in nutrition can take? I think one of the more popular career paths is uh, being an RD, a registered dietitian, where it's more clinical. You help people one-on-one with their diets, you know, for, I mean, there are a variety of different reasons that you might need to change your diet. And I I think that's one of the more common reasons people go into nutrition, but I mean, there are a lot of things you can do with, you know, a PhD. There is nutrition policy. When you think about in some countries, they have sugar sweetened beverages, beverage taxes to decrease the consumption of sugar sweetened beverages. Um, They have warning labels on certain food products that are really high in sugar or fat And then there's more of intervention research. So how do we get people to change their behavior to eat healthier or exercise more? There are people that do studies on that. And you have me. I I study more of just the biological mechanisms behind some of these diseases. There there are a lot of different things that I think you can do that people don't really think about. So with your degree, are you also thinking about becoming a registered dietitian? I don't think I will, mainly because I'm I'm not as interested in um, working one-on-one with people. And it's actually kind of the reason that I decided to go to grad school instead of med school. <laughs> I, I wanted, I think just my personality, I, I would rather be in sort of like a smaller, more predictable space with like less people. Yeah, I mean, there are some people that do both, that they do PhDs and their RDs. I think it's more common among people that study intervention work because they're kind of used to the idea of working with people to try to change their behavior. So I feel like the connection makes a little bit more sense. But I, I think I'm a little bit more interested in understanding the science behind it and communicating that science to people so that they can sort of make those decisions, informed decisions for themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting about nutrition is that there's like the basic science side, but there's also almost like a psychology side to it and like a marketing side to it. So it's such a broad 
topic. And on the topic of science communication and communicating that to people, you are the chair of diversity for NutriBytes, which is a nutrition blog that I came across. I think you shared it on your Instagram first and I saw it and I was really fascinated by all the blog posts that were there. And I just wanted to highlight one blog post that you wrote, which is titled, Yes, Racism is Affecting Nutrition. Uh, So could you talk a little bit more about this article for listeners who may not be familiar with racial disparities in health and science? And for those who haven't checked it out, I highly recommend reading that article. Yeah. um, So this article, I wrote this article right around, um, right after the murder of George Floyd, Maude Arbery and Breonna Taylor. And I was trying to process everything and decide what role I was going to play in this fight against racism. And it's, I actually had a long conversation with one of my friends who is also a scientist about what our role is as black people in STEM in this fight. It's a very like specific kind of unique situation to be in. And we didn't really feel comfortable going to protest for a variety of reasons. And I didn't want to just sit back and do nothing. And so I, I just kind of started reading and I dug into like racism in science and nutrition and I kind of just opened the floodgate. <laughs> and, you know, in, I mean, regarding that article, I, I really focus a lot on bringing light to racism that exists in nutrition. And so, you know, there's a lot of historical policy that kept black people poor, which increases your likelihood for food insecurity. And there are a lot of nutrition interventions that are studied and they're not really inclusive of people of color. And so a lot of times the strategies that they find work in white populations don't work in other populations. But for a long time, the assumption was that they would, but then they go and do those studies and they realize that they don't. But there are so many cultural differences. Even going off of cultural differences, when you know people of color meet with an RD, a lot of that nutrition advice is recommendations that are not culturally tailored and not just to black people, even Latinos and indigenous people. And that kind of, that bias and that, that subtle racism, like it creeps in. And if you don't address your bias, it is, it's going to creep into your work. And I think it's very important, like as scientists and medical professionals or clinicians that we really take a second to consider that because you really could be having major effects on people's health. Yeah, those biases are really interesting when you talk about it in a cultural context, because I think foods that seem unhealthy to one culture, specifically talking about like our Western culture, might not necessarily be bad, especially in moderation for some other cultures. That disconnect there is really harmful because how do you expect someone to just completely change their lifestyle and they might not even have access to it where they live? to these recommended foods. So yeah, that's a really interesting perspective to have for dietitians and other clinicians as they take on these more diverse clientele. So, you know, a lot of institutions, they'll recruit, uh, for the lack of a better word, diverse groups of students, and then they don't end up supporting those students once they've already entered the field. So as a successful woman of color in STEM, did you feel like you were encouraged to enter STEM? And then once you did enter STEM, did you find that there was enough support for you to stay? As a kid, I mostly felt supported. My family, um, 
and other people in the black community, they were very supportive of, of you can do anything you want to do. Like I, we will help you as much as we can, you know, we'll find what you're passionate about. And I, I even in, in high school, I had a, a biology teacher who I sat with for like 10 or 15 minutes telling her that I didn't feel like I would make it as a biochem major in college. And she just sat there and listened to me. And she was like, I don't know why you doubt yourself. Like you do so well in this class. You're so, you're so obviously capable. I'm, I'm really surprised that you're feeling this way. And so for the most part, I did feel supportive, but I, I definitely did experience a lot of microaggressions that, I mean, at the time, you don't really realize that they're microaggressions because you're so young. But I had a lot of people say things like, oh, you're so smart for a black girl, or you're not like the rest of them. You can, you can do it. But it's, that's a really hard thing to do with as a kid, because you kind of feel like it's like saying, oh, you are the one exception to your people. And it's just not something that I think a kid should have to wrestle with. And like, looking back, I realized how hard it was, but in the moment, you're just kind of like, um, okay, <laughs> you're feeling these feelings. You don't know why you're feeling them. In college, I was able to find a support system, but it's definitely hard because sometimes I would have these moments where I realize I am the only one in this class and it's just me and a hundred other students <laughs> or me and like two other black students and a hundred other students. And even though I never felt like people looked down on me in those classes, it's sometimes just, it's a feeling that just comes out of nowhere, of that just realization that you are the only one. And actually in undergrad, we had, we had a number of racist things happen on campus that were not properly addressed. And that, that definitely brought up a lot of that underlying racism within the system that people don't really realize what you're going through. But I, I had my my support system, and it, it the people closest to me were very supportive of everything that I was doing. Actually, even when I was doing undergraduate research, the um, the faculty I worked for, Dr. Charlotte Phillips, I love her. She was very supportive, and I remember I just joined her lab. But one of the first things she said in our one on one meetings was like, "I want you to feel supported. Like I understand everything that's going on, and if you need somebody to talk to, I'm here." And that's that's very valuable. That's it's very important that faculty do that. I think, and um, so it's. I think in my life in general, the good outweigh the bad, but the bad is hard, especially when people. I think modern day racism is not this intense, hateful thing. It's very subtle, so it's hard. It's hard to address it with people, and people get very defensive. And it's like I, I'm, I'm not trying to hurt you. I just, <laughs> you're hurting me, and I, I, I don't want to be hurt. And that makes it really complicated in higher education. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I cannot imagine what what it would be like to experience those microaggressions as a young kid in school, and then the the subtle racism at the institutional level um a hundred percent I mean being at an institution that where you see patterns of how they respond to certain racist events I think that cuts a lot deeper than people realize at the administrative level a lot of people see racism as not this like seriously in your face 
hateful thing as much anymore, but I think it it runs a lot deeper in the foundation of our institutions, especially science, STEM in general. And honestly, I think that's something that unfortunately is going to continue for a long time because, because of the institutional way that it's set up. And it's just, yeah, that's why it's important for people to continue to put so much attention on this issue and do the hard work of trying to sort of restructure things institutionally. But it's really, it's, it's really valuable to hear your perspective uh, because on this podcast, we talk to people from all different backgrounds. We, we try to talk to people of all different races. And I think just hearing individual stories is where our listeners can start to get some understanding of how being a scientist, your whole entire background affects your work and like who you are and how you've come to what you do every single day. We're not just these cookie cutter scientists. Like it's really about the whole person and keeping that in the work. So, I mean, speaking of the whole person, when you're not in the lab, what do you enjoy doing in your life? I, um, I, my favorite thing to do is travel, which obviously has become kind of impossible since 2020. Um, but I think Hannah knows we've gone to Portugal together and even when we were like in our, in our program, we, we took some day trips. I think uh, we went to Jacksonville. That's where it was. Yeah. It was yeah. great. I love that trip. We went fun. to like the aquarium, right? Yeah. And yeah, um, it was, we went to this yeah. like farmer's, not farmer's yes. market. It was like this outdoor market. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we were so we were at the University of Florida, which is in Gainesville, and there's like not much there. I would say it's like mostly the university. So Ashley and I were in the same suite, I guess. So we became really close, and then we ended up getting this award for being seen together all the time. And they gave us like <laughs> I don't remember what what was the thing they gave it was like a license plate. <laughs> oh, I think I think it was. Yeah, it was so cringy. I. <laughs> So <laughs> yeah That's so funny but it sounds like a fun time yeah 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 we bonded like that whole summer and then I decided to go to, to Portugal and didn't want to travel by myself so I invited Ashley along and then she found out she got an interview for the grad school that she's currently in so that was really exciting but also cut the trip short for you <laughs> yeah it was it was definitely a bittersweet moment, but I I don't regret my decision. Obviously, I'm very happy to be here. But yeah, that was that was a great trip. That was probably one of the most fun trips I've been on. We went um off-roading in like the mountains, like we toured a castle. It was it was very memorable. That's epic. <laughs> I love that story too. I mean, I I wish people did that more often, just like meet a friend and decide that it's great and then go travel the world together. Like, why not? <laughs> I think it's definitely hard to like find people you click with enough to do that. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm so glad it worked out. I, I think it was a great combination. I think we're both introverted. We're both clean. It, it worked out really well. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. We're both like pretty introverted and clean and like there were no issues that came up. And I think we're pretty direct too. Like if something feels off, we'd say it. So yeah, I'm really glad I met you. <laughs> That's so awesome. Okay, Ashley. So 
What advice would you give a student who is thinking about going to grad school? I would say one to get some research experience, get your hands dirty in the lab, think about different topics that you might be interested in. I feel like that undergrad is kind of the more, you have a little bit more flexibility and, you know, dabbling in research, but you know, once you get into grad school, you're kind of, you're, you're there, you're not. So I, I would get some research experience, get a feel for it, talk to graduate schools and professors. And I think once you're in grad school, I would make sure you have like a very good support system. I would not be here if it wasn't for the friends that I've made. They have kept me sane because it is, it is a very difficult time. It's very rewarding and you learn a lot. I've learned so much in just my first two years, but it's definitely a challenge and having a good support system can make a big difference. What is one piece of advice you would give yourself when you were an undergrad? That is that is a hard question. I I feel like that this is maybe more of a personal, you know, piece of advice, but I definitely tell myself to like communicate better with people in a professional environment. I think I communicate very well with my friends and my family, but I have a harder time, you know, communicating things to my advisors or my professors and having good communication skills can be very helpful. It can make difficult situations like a little bit easier. And, you know, for the most part, faculty are, they're, they're flexible and they're there. They want to help you. And so I, I kind of am even still learning that the hard way that I need to learn how to communicate better. Um, and that these are still people, you know, I, I kind of lose sight of the fact that like they have a PhD and they're so much more experienced, but they're still people. Um, so I think that's what I tell myself. That's amazing advice. I think we all need to kind of learn that our advisors are people too. I get so nervous sometimes and then I don't know he'll come into the lab and I just like mess up the entire experiment because I feel like he's watching me. <laughs> oh gosh that was me my entire first year like I was like please don't don't watch <laughs> this. Yeah well thank you so much for joining us again because of the technical issues last time and telling us these stories again. I know some some things are really hard to talk about, so we really appreciate you being so open. I'm glad to be a part of this. I, I really love the idea of this podcast. I hope you guys continue to grow. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been really nice to talk to you, Ashley. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.